It's Megacon, the largest comic book, anime, gaming, and multimedia event in the southeastern U.S. returns. Megacon from March 21st through the 23rd, 2014 at the Orange County Convention Center in Magical Orlando, Florida. Confirmed comic book guests include Frank Bruner, Neil Adams, Bill Sinkevic, Mark Wade, Ron Mars, Greg Land, Michael Golden, Dennis Calero, George Perez, Brandon Peterson, Amanda Connor, Jimmy Palmiotti, Collie Hamner, Carl Story, Renee Winterstater, Billy Tucci, and Brian Polito. Just added Nick Bradshaw, Adam Kubert, Dan Jurgens, Mike Miller, Kevin Eastman, Joshua Ortega, Digger, Bart Sears, Ethan Van Skyver, Mike McCone, Frank Thierry, Mike Mayhew, and Chuck Dixon. Confirmed media guests include stars from AMC's The Walking Dead, Torchwood, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Smallville, Battlestar Galactica, Star Wars, Star Trek, and many, many, many more. Plus I, Scott Gardner, will be there representing the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Tickets are available online now at www.megaconvention.com. Children 10 and under are free with paid adult ticket. That's Megacon 2014 at the Orange County Convention Center, Magical Orlando, Florida, March 21st through the 23rd. For information, contact info at megaconvention.com or visit www. Megaconvention.com. That's Megacon 2014. Be there. And now it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. I sense a disturbance in the force. You always sense a disturbance in the force. We're doomed. Fojo! I don't like this. Really pissed me off. Oh no! <laughs> it's a trap! Chewie, get us out of here! You can't run. Ow! Help me! Our two! This is where the fun begins. And now. Together by live simulation via the internet. Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell. You're a funny little boy. Hello and welcome to Star Wars Monthly Monday number 61. I'm Chris Honeywell and I'm here with Scott Gardner. Hello. Howdy. <laughs> How's it going? <laughs> rare occasion that we're actually starting early on a podcast. Oh my god! Well, I don't know if you want it, well early in the day, but you know the the day before the show's gonna go right. up. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, it's early in the day, which is really true. What is it? It's uh, just before three p.m. It's like whoa! This is yeah, this is kind of freaky. So. Hopefully it won't affect the uh, the quality of the material too awful much, I hope. <laughs> well, so how you been, man? You doing all right? I'm doing good. I'm working a lot. Yeah, I know. It's, uh... Ugh. <laughs> 
Well, on the, on the good news front, I, I kind of sort of ordered my computer today, so hopefully this uh, this whole thing of being computerless will uh, will be resolved, hopefully pretty soon. I set myself the goal of uh, I wanted to have a, a new, whatever I turned out to get, I wanted to have it um, up and running by the time of, uh, of MegaCon, you know, because I'm going to have shows that I'm going to, you know, hopefully I'll have audio I'll need to, you know, to get a... Uh, put together into some sort of a Megacon wrap-up show type of thing, so, and plus I've got, you know, I'm pretty sure that all of my uh, drives are full for my digital recorder, so I'm going to need somewhere to dump that stuff off to in order to have, you know, empty drives, so, but yeah, hopefully everything will be uh, up and running here pretty soon, you guys won't have to listen to me like I'm on a, (laughs) I was listening to the one that we recorded for uh oh it wasn't even what was i don't know what we, we even called that it was like our fourth week show it wasn't commentary monthly monday it was just a shooting the shit episode yep. and the quality wasn't bad but i sound like i'm on a phone is what i thought it sounded like you sound so. like you're on a really good phone <laughs> yeah yeah so hopefully that what you basically are you're on a you're, you're basically on a on a big iphone sort yeah. of yeah yeah well, I was actually debating whether I wanted to do this through the iPad or the iPhone. I could do it either way, and I decided, eh, I'll just do it through the iPad because I, I never know if somebody might call me on the on the iPhone, and I don't know what that would do to the Skype call. I don't know if it'd kick me out or if there would even be a, a noticeable, you know, noticeable anything. So I decided, yeah, I'll just use the iPad. So you know, we'd find oh, out just... about halfway through the show too, <laughs> right? Yeah. Man, I really, I really don't have much. The, the only thing Star Warsy lately is is I saw the trailer for that, um, which we talked about in that show. I saw the trailer for uh, Star Wars Rebels, mm-hmm. and it was very short, but uh, yeah, it it looked a little more cartoony than Clone Wars. It's in the same sort of um, CG style, CG like but kind of animated, you know, not hyper-realistic style. Mm-hmm. The main character looked like Aladdin, <laughs> sort of, <laughs> in a lot I of haven't ways. Seen the, I haven't seen anything. I mean, I've seen pictures. I haven't seen any actual footage or anything yet, so I'll have to seek that out because, I don't know, at this point, I, I don't know if it's anything I'm going to be there for or not, but I imagine that uh, there'll be some promotion for it with Star Wars Weekends this year. I'm you know, sure. if they carry forward from what they were doing with, you know, each season of the Clone Wars was kind of the big promote, you know, promoted thing uh, for Star Wars Weekends. And I don't expect this year will be any different because that that debuts when it's like this fall, right? That it's coming out. I think so. It might yeah. even be sooner than that. I'm not sure. Maybe. Well, I was looking here. The only uh, I had a couple quick things. The only the big thing I had was, uh, you know, there was big news recently that uh, you know this is the first year of Star Wars weekends where Disney owns Lucasfilm now and Star Wars. So there, it seems like they're really ramping up, and there's going to be some exciting new things coming along. They've added an entire weekend, so now it's going to be five weekends long. So the new uh, weekend that they added is Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Um, it's every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday uh, between May 16th and June 15th. So 
I thought that was pretty cool. Wow. And it actually has a theme this year, which is Join the Rebellion. And seeing as how the new show is called uh, Rebels, then it kind of seems like you know they're tying it all together. But the thing that had me most excited was, you know, I'm sure you remember last year, uh, for May the 4th, they had that big uh, fireworks display over in Hollywood Studios that I went there for. And I recorded it. I put it at the end of one of our, whatever our show was for what well, would have been the next month, I think. Depending on when the Monday was back there in May last right. year, I can't remember. But anyway, it was either the May or the June show of last year for Star Wars Monthly Monday. I put the audio of that fireworks show in there. And it was pretty cool. I mean, it was pretty impressive. Well, this year, they're going to do that same show or, or something very similar to it. Uh, I don't know if it's every night, but they're going to be doing it on every weekend of Star Wars weekends. I, again, I don't know if it's every single night or if it's just on select nights, but they will be having a special uh, fireworks, dis- you know, Star Wars-themed fireworks display uh, in Disney's Hollywood Studios. So I thought that was pretty cool. I'm looking forward to that because it was very impressive. I mean, they really went all out. It wasn't just... Here, let's play a little Star Wars music and set off some fireworks. No, I mean, it was themed, and it was timed to the music, and it was pretty impressive. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. But, you know, beyond that, and uh, I guess some casting's been done for the new movie, but beyond that, there wasn't really too much new, um, at least that I've really heard or found all that exciting so far. Well, like, um, on that last show, I promised to read uh, the the star wars comics mm-hmm. and i never i haven't gotten a chance yet <laughs> you lied i did <laughs> i've seen artwork from it and i thought the art artwork was kind of nice it is the the, the, the art looks nice i sort of skimmed through the first um issue it looks very talky which mm. doesn't surprise me from a george lucas first draft so we'll see right well, that main character reminds me a lot of the character from Dark Times, who I always had the impression was was supposed to look like Lucas himself. Oh yeah. So he uh, definitely flipping through it. The main character is George Lucas, you know, trim, you know, sort of trimmed up and muscled up. <laughs> <laughs> Minus the neck, basically. Yeah, but then again, when George Lucas was writing this, he didn't have the the waddle. The waddle. <laughs> the waddle. <laughs> well, before we get into things, the only other thing I really had, not to bring down the room, but it has to be mentioned, uh, we did have some sad news here recently. Uh, back on February 27th, uh, it came to light that uh, Aaron Alston suddenly passed away. Um, I think it was a, a heart attack, I believe. He was, he was at, at a con, convention. I guess. He collapsed. Yeah, and that's, that's what I was reading about it. And it was, I guess he'd been in poor health for quite some time. So I don't know if it was entirely unexpected, but still just the, you know, the nature of how, you know, how it happened and everything kind of, you know, kind of rocked and shocked the community. And, uh, just wanted to express, you know, our condolences because I, I posted something on his actual wall because his his Facebook thing is still up, of course, and people have been going and just, you know, expressing their condolences and all. And I, I posted something on there briefly. I'd, I don't have it in front of me to read exactly what I posted, but essentially I was kind of telling the story of of 
our couple of or my couple of encounters with him, you know, which started when you know when you and I uh, were at Dragon Con back in '09. Mm-hmm. You know, we kind of wormed our way onto those couple of different Star Wars panels. And he was on, I don't think he was on both of them. I think he was just on the first one. He was on on the Clone Clone Wars panel. Yeah, the Clone Wars one. And it's funny looking back on that now because I I tend to look back on that with just a, a hint of embarrassment. It was a blast. We had so much fun and everything. But damn, were we cocky, you know? Because <laughs> we came in and just kind of rock starred the entire thing. And to a, to a large degree... Um, I think we just took over the panel. We really did. I mean, because there were like, I think there were three other people on the panel. There was one guy that was just a, kind of a dick. There was one guy who was, um, I'm trying to remember what it, he was, uh, see, I don't even know how to put it. He, he was, he had some sort of, I don't know, it was, it was a speech impediment or he was uh, mentally challenged or something, but he, he really didn't say very much because, I think it was just hard for him to get a yeah. word in edgewise because he he had you know he had like slow and broken speech anyway, and then the fella on the end was Aaron Alston. And well, we I also had that guy um, Rosario who was really funny. Who was like kind no, of... he was on the second panel. Oh, that's right. He was on You're the right. he was on the adult panel. Yes, that's right. And so I don't know if it was a combination of our excitement, the fact that I don't know about you, but I'd had a lot to drink, or if it was <laughs> that the MC was just crap about introducing everybody. But I can't remember either Aaron Austin himself or the MC really properly introducing Aaron and, and letting us know basically what a big deal this guy was. So, like I say, we just kind of rock-starred the whole thing, and I don't remember Aaron really saying much of anything. And then it wasn't, you know, and of course, at the time, neither you or I were into the EU pretty much at all. So, a lot of the discussion that I feel like he really could have chimed in on and and lent something to, he really didn't, and we kind of took over the thing, and in a lot of instances, we're kind of talking out of our asses because we didn't know about the EU much at all, and here's the guy who wrote so much of it, you know? So then, you know, you fast forward, uh, what, a couple years, I think, to uh, um, Star Wars Celebration 6. Actually, you were there for yeah. that, too, when, 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 yeah, we ran into him again at, uh, at Celebration 6 right before the panel. And he didn't have his and, beard, and it... yeah. And, I mean, he was, I mean, I thought he was just really gracious. You know, he remembered us, and we kind of had chuckles about the whole thing and everything. And I think we even told him, like, gee, we feel really bad. We didn't realize who you were kind of thing. And, I mean, he, he, he didn't to me, care. was just, yeah, he was just really nice. <laughs> he you know, was he basically was, like, guys, I do so many panels. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think he kind of felt let off the hook that we would essentially just run the thing, but. Well, that's what just I... a super nice guy, and I'd I'd had the opportunity to you know have little, you know, PMing conversations with him on Facebook and stuff like that, and I'd, I had wanted to try to get him on the show at one point, but he didn't come right out and say it. But I think it was a combination of factors. You know, for one, he's always been very busy, but also between his uh, either failing or failed eyesight and his health and everything else, that he just wasn't really up to it, which was a shame. I would have liked to have gotten him on a show, but. 
just you know really really super nice guy and i was just really upset to hear about his passing i thought it was very sad because he was young too he was only like 53 so just thought that was a shame and yeah want to mention it that was pretty much that well <laughs> you know i think we need to bring the mood back up with some awesome comics Oh, did you bring some? Because the one we have to talk about. Uh... <laughs> yeah, does anybody got any? <laughs> exactly. Somebody send us some quick. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, did we tip our hand or what? Um, well, I'll try to lighten the mood a little bit by saying, hey, you know, I have, believe it or not, despite the story that we're about to talk about, I was really looking forward to this one. If I haven't mentioned it enough times before, because I know I have mentioned it before, this story that we're about to cover holds the distinction of, up until now, was the only Marvel comic Star Wars story I had never read. I had purposely been, well, for one thing, I could never find the damn thing, because up until the Star Wars Wild Space Omnibus, Volume 1, it had never been reprinted, so I didn't have a copy of it. And then quite some time ago, I'm thinking this is probably going on like two years or better at this point, um, our good friend... Andy Leyland of Hey Kids, hey Kids Comics sent me a copy all the way from jolly old England. So I've had it for a good long while. But again, I, I didn't read it. I wanted to hold it in reserve for this moment, you know, when we would actually get to the thing. Now, I had a feeling I wasn't going to exactly thrill to it, just having, you know, kind of seen, you know, pictures of it and basically knowing the story before ever reading it, just from synopses and things I'd read about it and everything. But I was still looking forward to it just because, hey, it's the one I'd never read. So <laughs> let's go ahead and go ahead and get into this uh, spellbinder right away here. <laughs> now, what's very funny about this is that there are no credits. I'm actually using the issue uh, for this synopsis. And I do apologize. I don't have anything pre-written, folks. I apologize. The reason I don't have anything pre-written, I don't have a computer right now. And I'll be damned if I'm going to sit here on the iPad and type all this crap out. So I figure it's a very oh. short story. It's not deep or complicated. So I'll just go ahead. Oh, and I, I, hmm? I heard of this stuff called paper. <laughs> yeah right well, i'm not gonna do that either <laughs> <laughs> that's what i, I use for my synopsis is i have oh, notebooks. really wrote it out yeah wow all right so this is from star wars the empire strikes back monthly number 149 now it, it was star wars weekly then it became the empire strikes back weekly for a time and then for a very short time it became uh, the Empire Strikes Back monthly. Eventually, it would go back to Star Wars either monthly or weekly. I forget. I think it goes back to Star Wars weekly, but I forget. So it's all the same title. It just kept changing around a little bit as new movies would come out and that sort of thing. But this is issue number 149. Original cover price, 35 pence. Not cents, pence. Has a cover on it. Uh, it's just credited here as Neary. Now, I'm going to assume that this is Paul Neary who was also the editor on this issue. Now, doesn't look much like Paul Neary, whose art I really, really like, but it's not a bad cover per se. It's just really, really strange. So up at the very top on the banner, it says, Our heroes reunited, but then disaster strikes. Um, 
No, they're not. <laughs> says, can Luke survive the horror of Death Mask? And that's the name of the actual story. And Death it's not mask. even Mask. It's Mask with a yeah. Q. Yeah. Now, the cover is, it's very odd because it's this weird monkey thing with suction cup fingers touching its very skeletal looking face. That part of it's just freaky and really like horror like comic style. Yeah. But then in like its mind's eye, it's seeing Luke in his Bespin fatigue standing next to his crashed X-Wing and he's watching Han, Chewie, and Leia be executed or blasted or something's going on with them. Spontaneously combusting or something. <laughs> yeah, something. Now that part of it's actually kind of cool looking. It's the freaky monkey looking thing that's just all kinds of disturbing. So anyway, first page is an opening. Uh, it's a full page splash that uh, don't care too much for it. It's a giant floaty skull floating in space. It's got Luke's X-Wing fighter. For some reason, Luke never opens his S-foils in the entire story. He's just flying around with his S-foils closed, which looks really freaky to me. And he's being attacked by uh, very Carmine Infantino-looking TIE fighters that are shooting out of the of the center window, which always makes me nuts. And that's why they really remind me of Carmen Infantino TIE fighters. Cause his TIE fighters would always do that and make me crazy. Anyway, no credits on the issue. However, in the omnibus, uh, underneath this first page, it does list credits. So I thought that was cool. It's, uh, art is by John Stokes story by Steve Moore lettering Jenny O'Connor. And again, editor on this is Paul Neary. So, Luke is out in patrol in the unexplored Lopez system, light years away from his home base. By the way, this story does take place after uh, The Empire Strikes Back. It's one of the early post-The Empire Strikes Back stories, and there's actually a specific reference to Luke's bionic hand in this that I thought was kind of cool. So he's flying around out there when all of a sudden two Star Destroyers drop out of uh, hyperspace and basically corner him. And he gets into a dogfight with all these TIE fighters and everything. In the meantime, uh, the Star Destroyer runs a scan on his ship, on his X-Wing, and they realize, based on the fact that the life scanners show that the pilot has a bionic hand, they figure out that it's Luke that's actually the pilot. So the captain of the Star Destroyer's name is Dirk Baylor. He uh, uh. calls up this guy. I don't know what this guy's function is. I guess he's like chief scientist or something. Uh, his name is Alton Waho. And he looks like... I don't know what he's supposed to like. He looks like Snape from Harry Potter. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that... Yep, he really does. Yeah. He looks like a cross between Snape and... Uh, and... Uh, oh, who was that guy in the early Infantino stories... Baron Tag, he looks uh -oh. like Baron scientist brother, mm -hmm. like a cross between Snape and the scientist Tag there. But anyway, this guy, uh, Waho, he has this little pet monkey thing floating in this like Green Lantern ball that follows him around. It, it's really bizarre. It's like a two-tailed monkey that's wearing basically like a light socket on top of its head is what it looks like. It looks like you know those um candle snuffers that they used to have yes. it looks like some or like a christmas bell or something that... yes yep yeah that is very much what it looks like so he says uh 
Now, I don't know exactly what he thinks he's accomplishing here, but he takes the little monkey thing, which he, he has named it. He's given it a name. He calls it Rice. And he takes it, he sets it free of the bubble, and then with the, uh, <laughs> with the fire snuffer still firmly in place on its head, he puts it in Baby Kal-El's rocket and launches it out of the Star Destroyer. Now, this was... Well, I was going to say this was the goofy part. No, this story has many goofy parts, actually. This is just one of this the goofiest. This is a, a goofy days. part. <laughs> it launches out of the Star Destroyer, and then while Luke is in the middle of a dogfight with TIE Fighters, it basically... Now, remember, folks, this is literally a rocket. I, I'm not joking. It really does look like Baby kal rocket from the old, like, Silver Age Superman. And it skids to a stop and lands and somehow sticks to... Luke's, let's see, this would be his starboard wing. Or no, is that his port? I don't know. Anyway, it sticks to the back of his X-Wing fighter. Luke ends up getting uh, shot down and has this horrendous crash down on the surface of uh, Lopez. Is this Lopez 3 or Lopez 5? Actually, it doesn't make any difference. He just crashes on Lopez, right? And he comes to a while later and, and finds that his X-Wing is like horribly smashed up and damaged. He can't leave the planet. So he's really got no choice but to go out and explore his new digs. And out there he finds just uh, a landscape out of a nightmare with all these giant skulls and these melted skeleton things. And uh, it's very, very EC comics, you know, horror comics looking landscape and everything. And he's wandering around down there, and he actually even chances across a freshly dug grave, and he brushes some snow off of a tombstone, and it's his own name that's on the tombstone, so pulling a little Ebenezer Scrooge there. And he hears somebody holler to him, and he looks, and standing off in the distance atop of a, you know, one of these skull things is Han and Chewie, and Luke realizes, well, Han and Chewie can't be here, and he's shouting back to them, and they both get, I don't know, blasted or something. They both take rounds in the back and they both fall dead. Luke tries to run to them and he comes around a corner, looks down into a valley. And this was one of the few really awesome art moments I thought in the entire issue because I really didn't think much of the art in this. But he looks down into a valley and there's the Millennium Falcon down there all blasted up and basically shattered, which is really cool. Somebody else hollers to him and he turns around just in time to see Princess Leia for some reason, she's dressed in her first movie outfit with the buns in her hair and everything. She gets blasted. She dies uh, in his arm. She actually melts away old age style. And this should have been a really cool sequence because one of my favorite Batman stories that happens to Robin, like Robin melts and, and you know dies of old age in Batman's arms. But again, the art in this is just really not good. So it's... It could be really exciting and really dramatic, but it's just kind of, you know, a, a presented as just a series of events. There's not a lot of impact to any of it. Uh, he sees a shadow fall over him. He looks up, and it's Darth Vader, which, again, should be incredibly exciting. And just the way it's drawn, it's incredibly not. And Vader pulls off his face mask to reveal a, a skull face underneath. Luke briefly fights with Vader, but then he decides it's best to just run away. <laughs> so he runs away, uh, but he can't go far because he spots stormtroopers over another rise. So he's basically pinned between Vader on one side and stormtroopers on another. 
and he hears Ben Kenobi calling to him, and Kenobi gives him advice that he has to use the Force, but not against his enemies. He needs to use it against himself, and Luke's all confused. He doesn't know what to do. So while he's cornered there, he starts using the Force, and he relaxes, he lets the Force fill him up, and eventually, using the Force, he's able to shake off all of this that's going on, and he comes to realize that He's still safe and sound. He's sitting in the cockpit of his X-Wing. He is down on the planet, but he didn't crash. He's actually okay. And this thing, the the Reist creature, turns out Luke knows what it is. It's actually a nightmare demon, a telepathic killer from the planet Droxine. And Luke Doesn't that sound like something you'd put in your eyes? <laughs> it sounds like something you'd take to like help you sleep at night yeah. or something. I thought, but... <laughs> And Luke says, uh, I thought they'd all been eradicated before the Clone Wars. So Luke's aware and conscious, but he can't move because this thing is doing something to him. And he witnesses an Imperial shuttlecraft coming down. Now, I have to uh, point out here that this is not like, say, like a Tidarium-style Imperial shuttlecraft. It actually looks like a, like a... I don't even know how to describe it. Just it just looks like someone lifted a rectangular portion of a Star Destroyer up. Yeah, yeah it's just a, a very boxy-looking landing craft. And now, two seconds ago, Luke said he couldn't move and he was all paralyzed. So I don't know if the Nightmare Demon is just distracted by this landing or what's going on, but Luke is actually able to get his hand working just enough to depress the switch on his lightsaber and when the blade shoots out it actually clips the nightmare uh, nightmare demon and knocks it off of him it doesn't kill it right away it just kind of wounds it knocks him off and then luke is able to shake off all this stuff that's been happening to him so he clambers out of his x-wing and he goes and he hides behind some rocks and he's kind of just scouting out this Imperial craft, waiting to see, you know, is it going to, you know, deploy a bunch of stormtroopers? What's going on? He's thinking that maybe he can battle his way to the ship and then use it to leave the planet. And he sees uh, Waho come out of the ship, and he Waho is calling for Reist and trying to find him. Luke starts to make his way into the Imperial craft once he realizes that apparently nobody else is coming out of it when he hears in his mind Reist calling to him. And Reist tells him that uh, that he can uh, help Reist basically get vengeance on the master who had kept him imprisoned all this time, meaning Waho. And then he expires. He basically tells Luke that Waho has this circuit that Luke needs in order to affect repairs in his X-Wing and be able to get the hell out of there. So then Reist dies, and Waho is pretty uh, upset about this. He really didn't expect that Luke would be able to just kill the creature this way. So he and Luke confront each other. Luke gets the drop on him, but then uh, Waho actually shoots Luke's blaster right out of his hand, which at first I thought, okay, that's just, that's really kind of ridiculous. But turns out there's an actually perfectly valid explanation for why this guy is such a sharpshooter, at least in that panel. He can't hit the broadside of a barn in the next panel. Luke gets the drop on him, throws his lightsaber like a javelin, and hits Waho dead center right in the chest. Pretty cool. But it turns out, wait for it, Waho is a droid. Whoa. 
yeah. So, he uh, turns out that Waho has this circuit that Luke needs. Okay, here's the other thing. It's not part of the ship, like you would think. Luke's going to use it in his X-Wing as a stabilizer unit. Um, but he takes it out of Waho. How the hell does that work? I don't know. At this point, I'm just like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> so Luke fixes his ship, puts the circuit in. He's good to go. And he decides, all right, if I uh, slide around the opposite side of the planet, maybe I can slip away unseen. And we see Luke flying away in his X-Wing, still with his S-foils uh, undeployed, which I thought was really strange. And we see Luke actually took the time to dig a grave, complete with a headstone that says Reist, for the little uh, space monkey creature, and that's the end of this mega exciting story. <laughs> I guess it should have said, Reist in peace. <laughs> Reist almighty. <laughs> oh, what did you think of this humdinger? I don't think I didn't like it as much as you, because I sort of like it's It's drawn in just that British style, like of the yes. 2000 AD newspaper and stuff yeah. it's it's kind of dry but it's very detailed and lends itself well to black and white yeah and i like that style it doesn't it, it, it just it doesn't mesh well with star wars stories mm -mm. that's yeah it, it ends up being you know it's it's an okay story, but it's like a it's like something you would read in like a weird science fiction anthology yeah. comic or something like that. I think this feel the feel of this entire story, as we're going to see with other stories that we're going to cover when we get into Devil Worlds next time. This is kind of the quintessential British Star Wars, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. They they all kind of have this going for a slightly more like weird science fictiony space tale as opposed to Star Wars mm -hmm. you know the, it, two completely different fields to this whole thing i mean if it wasn't for a few trappings like x-wing fighters tie fighters and luke with a lightsaber this I mean, this could be any science fiction story set in space. Yeah, it could be anybody chasing somebody to a planet. Right. And sending their space monkey after them. I mean, I may have been a little harsh with it. I didn't hate it, uh, but I wasn't... I mean, it did nothing for me. Part of it, honestly, a lot of it was the art. It reminds me very strongly of... I could never tell you the name, but you know, you and I used to love Mad Magazine when we were kids. John Severin. Is that who it is? Mm -hmm. There was always that one guy in Mad whose stories I'd skip invariably because I never liked the art. And this reminds me so much of that. He he typically did like movie adaptations and John stuff. John Severin. Yeah. Yeah. I really never liked John Severin's stuff. art. Really? This one. Yeah. Yeah, this one was yeah, it was it's. I think John Severin's art's more detailed than this. This isn't as mm -hmm. detailed, but um, yeah, it's one of those things where you're seeing Star Wars through a different lens, you know, oh, yeah. a sort of British lens. But um, it had. I, I can't believe you didn't bring up this, but it has one of my favorite, just two true freaks moments, 
when Han and, and Big Fat Chewie get shot in the back, what, Han says, of course we are. And then he falls face plant into the ground. And I guess what it's supposed to be is like it's it's like the ground is make, made up of tiny little skulls. Oh, yeah. And they all fly. But it looks like his teeth are flying out. His teeth got It looks knocked. like cartoon teeth it, getting knocked out. It does. Now that you point that, yeah, I hadn't noticed that before, but you're absolutely right. I did, however, notice Big Fat Chewy because he, <laughs> all right, this is going to sound so mean. He reminds me of my dad right here because, you know, my dad, you know, my dad's, you know, he, he, he's, especially these days, my dad, poor guy. Because <laughs> I know I'm headed there myself, but my dad reminds me of like if you were to take like I don't know like a refrigerator and put it on top of like a TV tray, <laughs> you know, and that's what Chewy looks like right here. Because he's just, I mean, he is what you said, big fat Chewy, but then he's got these scrawny hairy legs, and that that's total. I mean, that's gardeners anyway. We're all built like that, you know. <laughs> But he he's absolutely hysterical looking. Uh, it's just because he does. He looks like he looks like fat Sasquatch. Yeah. yeah, it's hysterical. I mean, there were. I mean, again, I I really did not care for the art, but it's not altogether bad because there were. Um, I mean, it's only just a couple of panels, but there were a couple of panels I liked. I really did like. The smoking destroyed Millennium Falcon mm -hmm. uh, on page ten. I thought, or I don't know what page it is in the omnibus, but I thought that was really cool looking. It's just, it's a neat image. And the very first panel of the confrontation between Luke and Vader looks really cool. I'm just, I'm, I'm disappointed with the overall sequence. That could have really been exciting. That could have gone somewhere. That could have been as cool as the confrontation in the cave in empire it just doesn't go anywhere and then i'm sorry i can't forgive rice he's flat ridiculous looking he's he's a monkey with suction cup fingers and a skull for a face i'm like what and then he's got like glowy jawa eyes he's yeah. just really bizarre looking and I've never been cool with humanoid droids in Star Wars. This is like the second or third one we've seen at this point, and I never buy it. Until we actually see humanoid droids in a Star Wars movie, I'm just not going to buy that. Because to me, Star Wars droids are, you know, as, as sophisticated as they get is basically 3PO. you know, 3PO's. You know? yeah. 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 So I don't see them being able to pull this off. You know, making droids that are so lifelike that the people that work with them and, and battle them or whatever don't even know that they're... Because I, I didn't get the impression in this that the captain knew, did he? I don't think so. I think if he knew, he would have said, you know, mentioned something at some point. Right. Which makes you wonder Plus, how a droid gets into the Empire and rises up the ranks and stuff right, like exactly. that. Exactly. You know, unless this guy was some sort of like servant of the emperor that was put there, because you do sense a little bit of animosity between oh yeah, uh, Will yeah. and the captain anyway. So maybe uh, that uh, you know further lends into my idea that the captain doesn't know he's a droid. Well, I think they don't like him because he's kind of like a a Tarkin 
with his and he's got his little space monkey with him at all times and everybody's so so it's like intimidating everybody you know if the monkey's name had been gleek i think i'd like this story that much better actually but yeah uh it's eh, it was all right uh i'm actually uh I was actually more interested in some of the other stuff that was in here. I'm not going to go into it, but there's actually a Star-Lord uh, story was one of the other features that was in here. And with the upcoming Guardians movie, I'm wondering if that will drive the uh, back issue prices of these that much higher. Oh, because, geez, again, yeah. I really want to get the rest of these. but I went to go get the together. Rocket Raccoon miniseries, and then I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I used to have that Hulk with the first appearance of Rocket Raccoon. And it that thing's going for a pretty not- penny. It is, but it turns out that's not because I always thought that was his first appearance too. But it's it's actually he appeared somewhere else. I couldn't tell you off the top of my head where, but he actually had appeared somewhere else. But that was like his first like quote unquote like big mainstream appearance was in that issue of the Hulk. Because I think I do have a copy of that. I'm I not bought sure. that one off the stand. I don't know why I still don't have it. If it weren't for the fact that I got a hell of a lot of money out of it, I'd be really sore with the fact that I didn't save that issue of, oh, God, what was it? It was either Tales of Suspense or Tales to Astonish. I forget. But whichever issue it was that Groot first appeared in, I oh. had that. I, I don't remember where I bought it, a garage sale or something, but I had it years ago. But it, at the time, you know, yep. it was Groot, you know. So I sold it. I got, I don't know, 50, 60 bucks out of it, which is pretty cool. Uh, there is also a Craven Warrior of Mars story in here, which, believe it or not, one of these days, I'd actually like to read that stuff. I've heard really good things about it. I've just never read any of it. And there were some really cool ads. In the very back, there was an ad for the, uh, do you remember the Darth Vader carry case for your action figures? I have three of them. <laughs> <laughs> It's a really great, uh, great ad. If I had my scanner working, I'd actually scan this and post it. When I when I get my new computer and get all set up, if I can remember to do it, I will actually scan these ads and put them up on Facebook so you guys can see what they look like. But it's really cool. And then there's another one for Star Wars watches, which I actually had a Star Wars watch, but I don't think it's the one that they're picturing here. A really creepy uh, pink pink stuffed animal hippopotamus on the back cover which is just ugh, i don't want to look at that but the one that really both like surprised me like whoa what the hell but then it's also absolutely hysterical there's an ad here i'm just going to read it to you now what first caught my eye was like wait a minute this is a marvel comic this is an ad with superman in it i'm like whoa what <laughs> can you help superman unmask the evil nick o the story so far. Nicotine, the arch enemy of Superman. Really? I never heard of the friggin' guy, but okay. I hear he's in the new movie coming up. <laughs> Has been tempting kids with cigarettes. Superman hurls him into outer space. See, there's a precedent for these sort of things. Not into the sun, which is what he should have done, but into outer space. But then he suspects he is back in Metropolis, cunningly disguised. Is he this dark barrel organ man? who appears suddenly from nowhere and turns his handle with dirty yellow fingers? (laughs) Is he the gray stranger who walks weaselly through the alleys at dusk, puffing and panting and losing his breath? Or is it the old magician teaching the kids tricks, coughing as he talks 
and grinning with stained teeth. <laughs> Superman pauses in his search. One thing you can't disguise, kids, the harm cigarettes do to you. Never say yes to a cigarette. <laughs> Watch out for the unmasking of Nicotine on your TV soon. Ooh. I've got to find that on YouTube or wherever. Yeah, gotta... I'm really sick of his arch enemy, Nicotine, being the only enemy they have for him in the movies. It's getting old. Why does it always have to be Nicotine? Nick Oteen, the arch enemy of Superman. And why are they? Why are they? Why did they make him Irish? What do they have against the Irish? <laughs> oh, I love it, love it, love it, love it. <laughs> but that's pretty. That's honestly, I didn't take a single note on this because I started taking notes, and the minute I started taking notes, and I got past like the second page, I realized, hmm, there should be about thousand notes on this, so I better not take any because. Woo, could I have a field trip with the nitpicks on this friggin' issue? So, but all of that said, I do want to reemphasize, Andy, if you're listening, thank you, buddy. Thank you so much for sending me this. It is a hoot. I mean, I, I, I got a kick out of it. It's not a great Star Wars story, but I got a kick out of it just because it is a hell of a lot of fun to read and just go, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of reading it and going, oh my God. Yeah, you let, got the let's pal. put some miles behind this one. Maybe Indiana Jones will be better. <laughs> or not. <laughs> Do you want to take a break? Um, oh, sure. I'm sure there's some crap we can play in between here. <laughs> Well then, uh, Scott, can you do me a favor? What's that? I've got an episode coming. Let's see. It's called Magnus Remembers uh, Superman Returns, so uh, don't listen to that episode. It, this is all kind of, it's all part of my Superman Begins like miniseries that, I, that I'm uh, going through, or was going through. This is all part of the uh, lead up to Man of Steel coming out on Blu-ray, right? Mm-hmm. I'm, I've got two little interludes. Uh, the first... Lucy, shut the f*** up. <laughs> Sorry about that, it's the dog. Trent is Magnus punches reality at twotruefreaks.com. Discussion about comics, movies, and TV shows. Trent is Magnus punches reality every Tuesday at twotruefreaks.com. No animals were harmed in the making of this promo. Clouds of war gather ominously over Europe. The Great Depression grips the world. But one globe-trotting archaeologist's thirst for adventure and discovery remains undaunted by his times. Stan Lee presents... The Further Adventures of Indiana Jones. Hello and welcome back to Star Wars Monthly Monday number 61. And now Chris is going to present for you the further adventures of Indiana Jones. Oh yeah. Let me turn on <laughs> the old reading light. Tip mail reading glasses down to the end of my nose. Settle in, it's going to be a great one. <laughs> it's Further Adventures of Indiana Jones number 17. 60 cent cover price from May 1984 when shit was cheap then. <laughs> it's got a cover, only the only um, name on it is Trimpy, and it's a very Trimpy cover. 
We'll get into that later. <laughs> um, Dave Michelini, <laughs> of course, is doing the story. Herb Trimpey, pencils. Vince Coletta, inks. The dynamic duo are back again. Oh, my favorites! Joe Risen, letters. Uh, Robbie C. So cool. Coltrane. He's only known as Robbie C. Coltrane. Rabbit Coltrane. Did the colors. <laughs> Elliot Brown did the letters, or was it, it was the editor? That's Joe Rising did the letters, and Jim Shooter is the editor in chief. Maybe I'm stalling on the <laughs> credits. <laughs> this one is entitled "The Search for Abner," Chapter One, The Grecian Urn. Okay, we start with Indy facing and uh, Marion. Uh, facing a minotaur in a tunnel below the Grecian city of Herculeon. The minotaur has a huge club and gives chase, prompting a flashback to how Abner told Indy that Marion went to look for her dad, and so he follows her to blah 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 to Herculeon, where he meets her on a bridge, and they are chased by a group of minotaur worshippers called Dorians. They chase Jones and Marion off a bridge and then into the tunnel, where they face the Minotaur. He pursues the pair, and uh, Indy knocks his bull mask off, and uh, then they dispatch him by tricking him into a room filled with apparently um, deadly bats. Uh, (laughs) They go back into town to meet Bill Kershaw, one of Abner's old partners, and uh, he basically sends him on a a trek to find... uh, this Frenchman named Lefant, who has a map of the legendary Tibetan city, Ralundi, where Abner is ru- rumored to be possibly the ruler of the city. So they go to Tibet and they find Lefant, who has teamed up with some guy who hates Indy from issue number eight. I don't know. And, uh, and of MacGyver. course. MacGyver. Yeah, MacGyver. I forget MacGyver. He was such an exciting. Oh, wait, no, he wasn't. McVicker, Mc, whatever. <laughs> From issue number eight, and and they've teamed up with the Nazis, of course, who are interested in Chekhov's gun alert, the healing secrets of Ralundi. Turns out Lefant is kind of a dick and plans to keep the map and kill our heroes. Marion causes a disturbance, picks Lefant's pocket with the amulet, amulet with the Ralundi map on it, and they escape on horseback. In the Himalayan foothills, they find Talon Rock, the entrance to Ralundi. They're crossing a rope bridge when a mysterious figure cuts it, and they fall against the opposite cliff face and begin to tumble into the abyss. End of part one. The search for Abner, the Grecian urn. Well, (sighs) we're hitting that point. Yes. This in the art, especially the cover on this, reminds me a lot of GI Joe. Yes. Um, I'm trying to remember who was who was Trimpy's inker on that. Was it Coletta? I don't remember. Because there's a very ish, early issue of GI Joe that has a cover very similar to this one. I want to say it was like the second or third issue or something like that of GI Joe. They remind um, me of like art you would find on a toy see 
Trimpy's still around. As a matter of fact, I think he's going to be at uh, at MegaCon this year. So seeing the fact that he's still around, and I, I don't know how these guys all relate to each other or what, I would die to know. I mean, I'd love to interview, like, uh, Michelini and ask him, you know, how, how did you feel about issues like this? To see, you know, w- was he cool with it? Did he think, oh, wow, this is fantastic? Or was he like me looking at it and going, wow, you take a perfectly good story that has a lot of exciting beats and you just ruin it with lackluster art? Because I don't find anything actually wrong with the story. I think the story is actually pretty decent. It's not the best Indiana Jones story, but it's exciting and it has. It's got some you know, neat ideas and it and it yeah, follows it has, the Indiana Jones like you know one thing to another, one right. clue to another story thing. Yeah. But the art is so boring and stiff that there's just no life to it, there's no excitement to it. I mean, there's several sequences in this that, in better hands, I think would really be some good stuff. And it's just not. I mean, all right, I'll give you a perfect example. And again, the friggin' pages aren't numbered, which really makes me nuts. But there's two panels spread over two different pages. It's the It's the panel where... Indy and Marion fall through the floor because the Minotaur smashes the floor and they fall down in and they find themselves in the dark. Indy lights a a torch and then there's one panel where there's all these bats flying around then you turn the page and then there's another panel and again, it's them spotting a door in the distance and running towards it and there's all these bats. Now, I can just imagine that Michelini had this scripted out with descriptions of everything and how it was, you know, basically the setup. India and Marion find themselves in a room filled with bats and they find a door. And you can either be, you can do your job and you can be visually exciting and you can create this rich, detailed, exciting, uh, vista of that sort of thing with this creepy room you know it's all dark and maybe there's like moss and cobwebs and all this stuff around and it's really dark and and it's just filled with bats and it's super you know creepy and dangerous and you know creates a mood or you can do what these hacks did and you can draw a box with sides, with a bunch of vague bat shapes, and a little, you know, a door off. I mean, this looks, and I'm sorry, I, you know, I'm not going to be nice about it. This looks like it was drawn by, like, a fifth grader. That particular panel is just, it's so sorry. There's nothing, not a goddamn thing exciting about that panel right there. No, that room is going to kill that giant minotaur. And, there, and, you know, I mean, there's a line in there, Marion going, they're going for my hair. But you don't see it. It just looks like bats flying around. You have to get an idea of why. For one thing, bats, even like a room full of vampire bats, do, bats just don't attack people. They just right. don't. And so he would have to, like, and that's okay. You can just have some sort of fake bat species in the Indiana Jones or in this room. But you have to see them attack them, you know? Maybe their faces should be scratched up when they get to the other side of the door. And, jeez, speaking of faces, 
Dear God, look at and on that, on that very page after they close the door. Look at Indy's face. It's just mm -hmm. like, you know, Rock Brickton from some 50s, you know, really cheap action comic or something. And Marion has this weird thing where her face looks like it was drawn. It looks like Peter Parker from <laughs> Steve Ditko's story. Right. But she's got this like Jack Kirby helmet hair thing going on. It's she looks like Jane Foster from Thor's what you know in the like the Kirby Thor yeah. is what she looks like. I mean, granted I, I'm going to assume Not in I a tribute a safe, sort of way either. No, no, not at all. But I'm going to assume, because I do think that this is a safe assumption, that they didn't have likeness rights to Harrison Ford or Karen Allen. But come on, you, you, you can't try a little bit to make it similar to... I mean, Indy, on the very next page from that... Or actually, I'm sorry, it's a couple pages ahead. It's where Marion gives money to whatever the hell that guy's name was, the drunk. Right? Mm -hmm. And they walk out. Outside, Indy takes his hat off and he looks like Steve Austin, the six man dog. Yeah, he man. does. And she does not, at, in, in any way, in any portion of this issue, does she even remotely resemble Karen Allen. She doesn't have the same hairstyle. Her face is completely different. She just, she might as well be a completely different character. Her face is almost generic. It, it, it's yeah it's very generic like and barbie doll style it's weird yeah i'm sorry i just i really this is this is exactly the kind of stuff i remember I it when it hit this to. point yeah i just in my memory it compacted time and i thought it we got here earlier and now i'm hoping that it gets better past the point where I gave up on it <laughs> and maybe there was some better stuff going on. But I remember I probably got like two or three issues in with this kind of, with this combination of art and, and just couldn't do it. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I hate to say it, but I've only gotten, see, I was going to say I've gotten better. I won't even say I've gotten better because I don't think it's my fault. I've only, gained a slight bit more tolerance for a good story with lousy art than I had when I was a kid. When I was a kid, lousy art was a deal breaker yes, for me. It could me be too. the best story ever written, but if the art sucked, I couldn't hang with it. I've only really gotten a little bit better with that over time. I mean, because I appreciate what Michelinie's going for here. I don't find fault, for the most part, with the story. I don't think the, the story was the problem. I think the, the problem is solely on the art. It's not dynamic. It's not interesting. It's stiff. It's not consistent. It's not consistent. And it's it, it commits the worst crime you could possibly commit when you're talking about an Indiana Jones story. It's boring. Yep. It's yep. boring to look at. I mean, because some really, truly, you know, ex if this was a movie... Some exciting things happen here. He he battles this Minotaur guy. They fall down in the well of bats, essentially. You know, there's some great chases. There's a lot of you know. There's a lot he, of fisticuffs. He tricks some their action. chaser, his their pers his pursuers into thinking he's throwing, um, 
grenades at him. Right, and Marion actually does set off a couple of grenades in one portion. And there's a, you know, a nasty vehicle accident, and then the story actually concludes with essentially a, a, a Tibetan version of the rope bridge scene from Temple of Doom. None of which looks good or exciting in the entire issue. And that's not just me ripping on it. I mean, it just doesn't. That final uh, splash page, the, the finale splash page, should be thrilling and exciting. They're plummeting to their potential death. And it, I just look at it and go, huh, it's, your, it's your typical you know, Herb Trimpey, who I have seen some Trimpey I liked, but he has to be paired with a decent inker it's trimpy and then he's had the the coletta hack job done on him where there's minimal detail and the ink doesn't add a thing and it's i just look at it and go boring and it's such a shame because man i mean we we've seen other michelini stories of varying degrees of you know interesting or whatever done by other artists that i mean you know because you look at that story i'm trying to remember what the the whole that one that we were looking at not long ago with um carrie gamble art oh yeah with the bull and all that that story in the long run i mean it had great like indiana jones beats but the overall story i mean was it really that exciting no not really but the art was fantastic in that and so, you know, it was that perfect marriage of a pretty decent story and some fantastic art made for issues that you looked at and go, hey, I really liked that. Whereas this, you've got, a, again, that's a pretty good story and just atrocious art that makes you walk away from the issue just going, you know, I'm just not feeling it with this one. Because at this point, I really don't give a rat's ass uh-huh. where the story goes, what happens if they find Abner, if they don't, I just, ugh. really not good really really not good i'm sorry it does give me a little bit of hope though i i cheated and i looked ahead a little bit i think this entire story is by the same team but further down the road i know bolinati comes back i know eventually um we do get some great covers at the very least by uh, uh michael golden and eventually, what's his name? Uh, you mentioned in a little while, Steve Ditko comes along. Oh, that's right. And I'm curious to, to revisit that stuff. Because like I said, past this point, I've never re-read, reread any of these issues after reading them just you know one time as a kid, you know, buying them off the stands. So, I probably didn't yeah. get much further than this, is yeah. what I'm thinking. I, I stuck with it for the entire run, but it was tough. <laughs> <laughs> But, did you have anything else on this one? Oh, no. No, no. I feel like I went on a tirade there, but, ugh. Ugh. Anyway, I don't want to leave us on a sour note. We, if we haven't said it enough, we have awesome, awesome listeners. And I have, as you may hear me actually shuffling here, listen to this, listen to this. I have feedback Ooh. we've gotten some letters and we've gotten some really really good letters here too so let's round out the show by addressing some feedback <clears throat> so first one here we have 
Star Wars Monthly, this is the subject line, Star Wars Monthly Monthly, uh, Princess Leia's Boobs. <laughs> Ooh. Okay, I'm <laughs> <Yes>. listening. <laughs> I'm going to warn you right now, it's a bait and switch. Oh. It says, Dear Scott and Chris, this is from Mark Sandroni. He says, first of all, let me come clean. There is nothing in this email that has anything to do with Princess Leia's boobs. All right, well, moving on to the next email. That No, I'm kidding. <laughs> this is, but I am He's a classic... Mark Sanfoni. <laughs> this is, but I am the classic longtime listener, first-time caller slash emailer, and I wanted to make sure you read my email. Otherwise, I would have been uh, crushed worse than a baby Ewok under an AT-AT's foot. I would like to start off by saying that I have been a huge fan of pretty much all of your podcasts for several years. When I first started becoming aware, uh, uh, aware that there were other weirdos, I mean uh, fans of Star Wars, Star Trek, comics, etc. doing podcasts, yours was one of the very first ones I came across and was instantly hooked. Scott's unapologetic enthusiasm and love for comics and sci-fi, combined with Chris's Slightly more analytical and scholarly approach, <laughs> and by scholarly, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> by scholarly. Wait, just let I me mean, laugh for a second. <laughs> okay. And by scholarly, I mean looking at things from the outside, uh, the quote-unquote geek bubble, at how they function as practical pieces of fiction, film, and art, etc. Really created a fantastic contrast and made for incredibly enjoyable listening. All of this in combination with the chemistry you guys have as longtime friends instantly made this uh, my all-time favorite podcast. Ooh. And while I have listened to a sampling of other nerd-centric podcasts over the years, the two true freaks family of shows are pretty much the only ones I listen to anymore. Well, what what else do you need, dude? <laughs> no, seriously, thank you. That's very kind words. I appreciate that. So, so I'd and like to you start other this... listeners. Why can't you be more like Mark Sandroni? <laughs> So I'd like to start this email by both congratulating you uh, on an absolutely fantastic series of podcasts, as well as thanking you for all the hours of ridiculously entertaining shows that you've put out there for all of us to enjoy. So, so I'd also like to quickly mention that I'm the guy who a couple of years back uh, did that drawing for you mm -hmm. guys of Scott and Chris riding the monorail was, at Disney World. I was just going to bring that up. I was going to say, he's being humble. He's not saying what a great artist he is, but I guess he's he not being too humble. <laughs> <laughs> uh, at Disney World in a Jack Davis, Big Daddy Roth style. Mm -hmm. Yes, I love that It's picture. a great picture. I absolutely love that one. Uh, since that was fun to do, and I hope to be able to contribute some other uh, or some more artwork to you guys in the future. Yes, please. Well, when we ever okay. get our shit together and do Two True Freaks comics and stories, mm. put them to work. There you go. It says, okay, on to Marvel Star Wars. We know that there are several different perspectives on the Marvel Star Wars comics. As you have mentioned in the past, by and large, a lot of fans dismiss the books as crap, which I believe is highly unfair. Then there's the opposite view, which uh, I think is personified by you, Scott and Chris, that these stories are actually very good if given a fair chance by the reader and constitute some outstanding Star Wars stories. While I agree uh, with that view to an extent, I'd like to offer a third opinion. Uh, while I don't at, uh, at all agree that these stories are awful and should be thrown out faster than hot rancor turds, 
I have to admit that at best, the stories uh, present a mixed bag, primarily in the story department. I fully understand that the creator's hands were greatly tied by lack of material beyond the first film in the early days of the series, as well as uh, greater restrictions from Lucasfilm as the series progressed. But comic book writers uh, had been producing grand uh, swashbuckling adventures set in space for decades at that point. So I also got a sense that the writers were never being as imaginative as they could have been. Um, hold, hold on, just uh, let's see. Gene Roddenberry said he was... Oh, I think this is supposed to be so often. So often asked if he would ever run out of ideas for Star Trek, and his answer was basically, how could I? I have a whole... Uh, I have the whole of unknown universe to play with. I feel like the creators of Star Wars comics could have used a bit of the same attitude. Instead, I feel like we got a fairly routine space comic, which had some hit or miss stories. Now, as I said before, um, I still very much enjoy the Marvel Star Wars comics. And here's where I come to my third point of view, that I enjoy them all in their goofy glory. The person who looks down on the Marvel Star Wars comics may look at a character like Baron Tag with his new wave Devo sunglasses and red jumpsuit and say, he's goofy. Scott and Chris may look at the same character and how they first perceived him reading these books as kids and say, no, he's awesome. My view is he's goofy and awesome. Yeah. <laughs> that is to say, I both acknowledge some of the shortcomings of the comics, and by the way, I'm just using Baron Tag as a visual example. I actually really do think he uh, was a cool character from the early years of the book. Yet still have a uh, blast reveling in their very wacky Marvel style. I feel like people could really enjoy these comics if they just look at it through the lens of time and appreciate them within the context of when they were created. They're not perfect, but they're fun. And that's what both comics and Star Wars are all about at their core. Amen! I... Hey, you're preaching to the choir, dude. I think yeah. this is what we've been saying all along. Uh, it says, now about the Weapons Master, which you covered in your last episode. Of all the UK Star Wars stuff I've read so far, uh, as I make my way through the Wild Space Omnibus along with you guys, this is the story I've enjoyed the most. Giles and his little sidekick are actually pretty interesting characters, and while I like the way their stories wrap up within the context of this particular adventure... I think they were cool enough to have been featured in other stories as well. The art is classic old-school Infantino, and you can tell he had a field day being able to dedicate an entire story to Princess Leia. I said above that this email didn't have anything to do with Princess Leia's boobs, but I'm actually going to have to take that back and say I couldn't help noticing Infantino draws Leia's boobs as if she sharpens them with a pencil sharpener. And <laughs> <laughs> while we're keeping it classy... There was something in this story that had me in stitches, and I really, I'm really surprised you guys didn't mention it. In panel number three on page 126 of the Omnibus, just after Giles has taken Princess Leia under his tutelage, there's a caption that reads, While Giles drilled me like a first-year student at the Space Academy aboard his ship, I hadn't been forgotten down on Shalon. <laughs> How on earth did you guys not comment on that? It's because we're too classy. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like a free comedy routine of the uh, from the gods. I was going to give you a hard time for not referring to that at all, but then you made up for it on Comics Monthly Monday when Chris mentioned Isis doing a slow rise into the air and Scott responding with, I did a slow rise into the air. <laughs> Which had me in hysterics for about five minutes. 
so I forgive you uh, for your lapse. Just don't let it happen again. The Indiana Jones story you covered, also uh, pretty enjoyable, especially after the steaming hot turd burgers of the last few issues. Oh, you should you should love this episode. Oh, welcome to it, episode 61. <laughs> <laughs> I feel the same way in general about the indie comics as I do about the Star Wars books. They are fun examples of what you would get in a licensed comic of the time, but I also felt they uh, relied way too much on recycling scenes and situations from the films. Well, see, at this point, there's only just the one. I think that's part of the problem, though. I agree with you that there's a lot of recycling, but there's only one movie to recycle from. you got to keep that in mind. That being said, The Sea Butchers was a huge step up from the indie fights a crime ring operating out of a cave in the middle of the goddamn desert we saw in issue 13, as well as Indiana Jones and the inventory clerk of doom we saw in issue 14. Pondexter definitely wins the title of lamest villain in the indie rogues gallery ever. Issue 15 wasn't too bad by comparison, though I'm surprised you guys never mentioned Indy constantly referring to Katanga as Simon. Really? Effing Simon? Oh, brother. You know, I, I thought we did mention that, didn't we? Because I think that was one of my nitpicks. I don't know. Maybe I forgot was to mention Was his name not it, supposed I... to be Simon Katanga? Well, see, I don't... That was... See, I, that's why I think I did mention it, because I remember thinking... All right, you know, everybody's got a first name, obviously, but where the hell are they pulling Simon from? I mean, is that from the novel, which I read, but I can't remember now, or was it from, like, a gaming module? No, they're paying they tribute to that cartoon. Or... What cartoon? You know, where the things he drew came true. <laughs> I have no idea. You never saw about. the Simon cartoons? Uh, I used to show them on Captain Kangaroo. Oh, okay. Well, you know, my name is Simon things I draw come true. <laughs> okay. Just take me, take me over, climb the ladder with you. Well, you know my name is Simon, and the things I draw come true. I think I made a note of it. Whether or not I actually mentioned the note during the episode's a completely different thing, but I know I at least made note of that, because it kind of bugged me, too. Uh, he says, oh, brother, he says, but I'm also very... Uh, happy you didn't disappoint with the Indies Got Crabs jokes at the end of the issue. Great job. Well, I don't want this email to go on forever, so I'll wrap it up. I'm getting hungry, and my wife just made um, some snake surprise and chilled monkey brains. <laughs> Thanks again for all the great podcasts and for taking the time uh, to make one of my nerd, green, nerd dreams come true by reading this email. And if you don't read this email, I will quote Conan's prayer to Crom and say, Done to hell with you! <laughs> Keep up the awesome work, guys. You rock. Mark Sandroni, North Hollywood, California. From North Hollywood, California. <laughs> okay. All right. Woo. This next one's quite lengthy as well. So I'm just going to go ahead and dive right in here. It's entitled Star Wars Monthly Monday, number 60, which was last episode. Greetings, freaks. I'm glad that my last email generated so much interest, uh, interesting discussion in your latest episode. However, upon hearing said discussion, I realized that I came off a bit like I was throwing accusations. Please note that I don't necessarily subscribe to everything I brought up in the email. I just like asking these sorts of controversial questions, since trying to answer them can be illuminating. Oh, so basically he said, I didn't mean it. I'm just stirring the shit. <laughs> That's fine with me. <laughs> yeah, that works. 
So as you see, I have the mutant uh, ability to set aside my own love for something and then study it critically. Well, you know, I don't know if that's an ability I would like or not, because I don't think I do have that ability, I'll be honest with you. Uh, it says it can be a fine line to tread when one does that because one's childhood love for something like Star Wars can diminish when one starts getting into backstage politics and such. Yeah, see, that's exactly what I would be afraid of. That said, even fictional works uh, that mean a lot to me shouldn't necessarily be considered sacrosanct, you know? Asking uncomfortable questions and looking at things from a more adult point of view can be very rewarding. Anyway, I wanted to clarify the origins... Uh, of the series a bit for you guys since you uh, admittedly haven't had a chance to read the secret history book yet having contributed to the book i've done a lot of homework on the development of the films a subject which i find fascinating fascinating at every stage of its development star wars was just one movie each draft of the script uh, represented progressive refinement uh, of the same basic rescue the princess and destroy the death star story despite his claims Lucas did not write a quote-unquote big script that he chopped into sections, nor did he decide to make the most interesting part into a movie. There were loose plans for sequels, however. Alan Dean Foster was brought in to write two sequel books, which would wrap up the story featuring the final defeat of Vader and the Empire. Lucas was hoping that these books might serve as the basis for low-budget sequel films, since the first movie probably wouldn't do well enough to warrant elaborate theatrical sequels. However, after Star Wars became the biggest movie of all time, Splinter of the Mind's Eye, the first sequel book, was released as a mere spin-off, and work began on a more elaborate sequel. In this early phase, the plan was to make a potential non-linear series of 12 films with no real through-line. There might be a young Obi-Wan uh, Kenobi movie, a Wookiee movie, etc., and I just want to stop here to say, you know, this is the first time I'm ever hearing this. I want to know more about the second sequel book. I wonder if there's anything known about I wonder if they that. ever even thought of, I think once Star Wars started making the money, the, all the changes plan, plans changed, you know? That's, oh, right. I mean, I mean, I'm not going to fault Lucas for not planning a bunch of movies and... And the whole like big script cut down, I never bought that either. I just pictured it as big script as in he covered a lot of length of time in his story. Right. And he had to uh, tone it down to make it flow better. But right. not like a sweeping storyline that had been at all that, you know. So I, I, I never bought that whole, like, oh, yeah, we planned on doing all. I meant to do that. Well, you know, at this point, Star Wars is creeping up, uh, creeping up fast, as a matter of fact, on 40 years old. And there comes a time, and, you know, I, I don't know how long the, the requisite time is, but there comes a time with anything that, that has a certain scope to it where the Apocrypha and the legends and the stories and everything else becomes part of the myth of that thing. For you know, for ill or good, that's just part of things like this. So that one day you look back, you know, fifty, seventy-five, a hundred years later, and it's really difficult to separate yeah. the legend from the truth. I mean, we see that all the time in geekdom, you know, where Stan Lee tells stories, and he frequently will say, "I've told this story so often that it may even be true." That sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So I, I would never accuse Lucas of 
lying or stretching the truth. Maybe this is on in his own mind. Maybe this is the way he remembers it. I sure. Mean, because I'm sure he never thought that one day it would be, quote-unquote, important to people to know exactly what the series of events from A to B to C actually was. I mean, I think we all experience that in our everyday lives, that there's important things that happen to us that you look back 20, 30 years later, and it's like, uh, you know, I don't have all the details of this story, but here's essentially how I think it went down. So that that's how I look at it's it. It's like people you know the the old time rockers that are still touring you know that are you know they're hitting their 60s and 70s now sometimes when they go on tour they have to go and relearn from scratch some song that their fans know by heart you know right and think that they would know inside out and they're just like oh yeah it was a song i wrote you know i mean it's the same thing like well not to compare us to the great rock stars but there's stuff that we said in podcasts a month ago, <laughs> last podcast that I don't remember because it's right. just blather blather. Then you then you listen to it again when you make it, when you put it together, and then you're on to working on the next podcast. So you just forget. Right. And uh, but the it, it's it's that difference of being inside the project and outside, and you know the 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 creator and the consumer of it. When when you're the creator of it, you don't necessarily he didn't all through Star Wars. He wasn't thinking I'm making history here. I better do this and that. He was thinking, "Oh my God, I better get this thing done, or I'm gonna, you know, never make a movie, another movie again." Right. And that was his. He was running around worrying how to get money and how to get things done and how to build their sets again. He's he, you know. It's the same. Lots. Uh, same with lots of actors and stuff. People ask him something about a movie. They go, "I don't know. I never watched the movie again after I was in it. You know, I don't right. remember really exactly what happened." Right. Uh, he continues here in the three years between Star Wars and Empire. A lot of development occurred story-wise. The notion of Vader as a cyborg was introduced only after the first movie had been filmed. Uh, once the breathing sound effect uh, was developed for the sound mix. And Lucas invented the volcano duel to justify it. Previously, the idea had been that Vader was simply turned evil and left Kenobi, just as Vader says in the film. At the time of filming, the concept was that Vader simply wore a scary armored spacesuit, not a walking iron lung. After Leia Brack, well, let's see. At the time of filming, see, this is the one part here where. I'm going to kind of call this into question, though, because in the movie, he's, uh, I'm going to repeat this last one. At the time of filming, the concept that was that Vader simply wore a scary armored spacesuit, not a walking iron lung. Then what is the thing on the front of him supposed to be? Because I always took that thing on the front of him as it was some sort of life support type of deal. So I'm curious about that right there. I, I'd like a little more elaboration on that. Basically, where where is this coming from? Is this out of the secret history book or? I've got to read that. <clears throat> yeah. See, I lost my copy of it with this damn hard drive mm -hmm. crash. Now I need to get another copy. Uh, anyway, he continues. After Leia Brackett's first draft on Empire, then numbered as Chapter 2, which included the ghost of Luke's father helping to train him on Dagobah, Lucas himself wrote the next draft and hit on the idea of Father Vader. It was at this point that Chapter 2 became Episode 5, as Lucas realized that he had enough material to tell a compelling fall-from-grace story in Episodes 1 through 3. 
This was when more concrete plans for nine films and three trilogies were developed. Eventually, Lucas was burned out after only three films, and so made seven through uh, and so seven through nine were dropped, and the story concluded in Jedi. Many years later, Lucas came back and made one through three. I have no axe to grind with Lucas except for his suppression of the original versions of the original trilogy. And I do kind of understand, but not condone, why he's apparently deemed it necessary to rewrite the history of the movies. I get the impression that he simply doesn't want to have an Emperor Has No Clothes moment by revealing that most of the story was made up on the fly. I really do empathize with the man, considering the tremendous pressure and attention that the Star Wars phenomenon has brought, uh, brought upon him. If it were me, I'd be insecure too. Hmm. I don't see it as much a Lucas covering his ass, Emperor's No Clothes type, although nobody wants to see the Emperor with no clothes. <laughs> um, I think it's more, I, if it was me and that was the way it was, I would take that story too because it's a better story. Right. It writes better. It gives you something to tell the people who are asking you rather than, I don't know, I was just making it up as I was going along, which is more honest, but it's Hollywood, you know? I. It, it, well, also, too, I mean, you know, Lucas himself at this point ha has that, you know, for lack of a better term, he has that rock star status, you know, and, and he's a hero, or was anyway, a hero to a lot of people, and not the least of which are aspiring filmmakers and so i mean i know you've experienced this chris where you meet somebody that you've considered you know a a, a hero or a role model or just you know a, a, a celebrity that you wanted to meet and then you meet them and something that they say or something that they do really kind of slaps you in the face that wow you know this dude puts his pants on, you know, the same way I do every morning. You know, he, he's not a god. He's just a guy. Mm -hmm. And so I think if, you know, if Lucas is at some fan convention or something and he's asked about this story, like you just said, it plays better as this story of, well, I had this grand vision and I realized I couldn't make my thing. And so I blah, blah, blah. And tells that story as opposed to just going, I don't know, I just made it up as I went along. Yeah, that's not real exciting. And you, you I think I would sit there and have a moment of, yeah, oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, it, it just kind of lets the air out of your balloon, you know? Uh, let's see, where was I here? As for Empire Strikes Back, uh, Empire Strikes Back, I really don't mean to come off like I was dissing it. I just think it's useful to look at things from different viewpoints, even when it comes to occasionally asking tough questions. As noted previously, I love Empire dearly. It's an incredibly well-made film. That said, I can still examine it from a more critical, or cynical, point of view. I should reiterate that I don't necessarily subscribe to this. I'm just providing food for thought. Looking at things more objectively... It's pretty clear that Lucas was trying to bank on the success of Star Wars by turning it into an ongoing series that would uh, fund his filmmaking retreat, uh, which would become Skywalker Ranch. Both the main story and the backstory of the original standalone film were rewritten uh, to turn it into an epic saga, which would uh, serve as an ongoing source of revenue for Lucasfilm. A number of elements in the film seem tailored 
specific, uh, specifically to sell toys, the vehicles, the bounty hunters, the co uh, characters' costume changes, etc. Uh, yeah, it seems like we've gone around this before. I'll give you that when it comes to Return of the Jedi. I can't agree with you when it comes to Empire. Um, because the things that you're talking about that you're seeing as uh, your own words here tailored specifically to sell toys, and you say the vehicles, the bounty hunters, the characters' costume changes, I just see that as a natural outgrowth of it's another film set in another environment. I mean, they're on a snow planet. So yes, I would expect to see ships that are more tailored to that environment, clothing that's more tailored to that environment. Well, that was also something you expected from a new Star Wars movie is to see stuff that you've never seen before. Exactly. I, I expect that from every Star Wars movie. I expect to see uh, a new environment planet, you know, I'm, because in the first one you got the desert planet, the second one you got the snow planet, you know, the last one you got the forest planet. I, I want to see a different planet of a type every time. You see, Another I can see that, like, the one moment in Empire that I could see is potentially being a marketing moment, but I would see it more like after they filmed it, they were probably like, oh, this will work out well with the action figures, is the bounty hunter scene. Because Boba right. Fett's the only one that does anything after that, and they're like, Here's our bounty hunters, and they sort of introduce them, you know, and go down the line with them. And it's it's a total in, good introduction for a, fi a series of action figures and really cool action figures <laughs> right? on top of that. But I don't think it was written specifically for no. that. I think it was written because it was sort of in the style of that kind of story, you know? Right. It's kind of goofy, you know? We got a, a whole series of of different species bounty hunters. It's just a detail that you would add to something like that. Right. Whereas every Star Wars film that's come since, I, I think that the toy uh, factor has, has been a major factor in those films. And sometimes I think it's perfectly evident. Sometimes it is. Sometimes I think they kind of, like the, the pod racers... I think that was like, ooh, these are going to make great toys. But I think the pod racers were just like designed funny for toys because they had weird like thing, you know, a thin wire li linking the engine to the body of it. And I think right. they made for poor toys. <laughs> yeah. Poorly designed yeah, toys and hard to play with and not very visually striking because the engines sort of flop around and stuff. Uh, he continues here, the difference between Empire and Jedi, however, is that Erwin Kirshner and Gary Kurtz wanted to make an artful movie with depth, while Richard Marquand was, by most accounts, serving as Lucas's uh, sock puppet director. Empire was the hardest of all the films to make, and Lucas had gambled his Star Wars earnings on it. It went over schedule and over budget, and he was displeased with how it had been shot, uh, to the point of trying to recruit uh, recut it himself in a breezier, more lighthearted fashion. However, this attempt to apply the whiz-bang, fast-paced style of Star Wars simply didn't fit with the material Kirshner had filmed. After the stressful experience of making Empire, you can really start to see the beginning of Lucas, uh, the beginning of Lucas the control freak, who surrounded himself with yes-men. Hmm, that's actually a really good point, because yeah, there is definitely a turning point there. I never really thought about that before or heard about that before, but it makes perfect sense. Reportedly, Empire is Lucas's least favorite of the films. Wow. I never, you know, I never heard that before. And there might just be some truth 
to the notion that it's the best of the films in spite of Lucas's involvement. For example, Kirshner was able to make Hans being frozen in carbonite because Ford wasn't uh, signed for Jedi into a genuinely touching subplot after all. It doesn't feel like a script uh, contrivance, even though it really should. Kirshner cared about the story and the character. Lucas is more about broad uh, plot strokes, visuals, and action. Anyway, on the matter of viewing order, I think the most uh, illuminating way to do it is uh, four through six, and then one through three, and then there, uh, and then the special editions of four through six. There's a weird feedback loop uh, that occurs in this series because of the fact that the context of the five other films completely changes the story of the original. Uh, to get the full experience, one needs to watch the original trilogy as originally presented, then revisit it in the different context that the prequels and special edition changes give it. Star Wars really becomes a completely different movie with the prequels and the sequels uh, on either side of it for good or ill. That's very true, actually. Yep. yep. Sorry for yammering on so much. Hope this isn't too much food for thought. No, not at all. And, uh, that's from Greg Kirkman following up on uh, a very uh, thought-provoking email that he sent us last time around. So I appreciate it, Greg. You have given us a lot of uh, food for thought on this. Um, the, the two things that uh, I just wanted to mention before we move on to the next one is if you know anything about this other sequel story, uh, you know, the Star Wars sequel, uh, I'd really like to hear about that because I've always heard, you know, I've always known that... Uh, Splinter was the, you know, quote-unquote intended sequel movie until Empire came along, but I never heard anything about a second sequel book, so I'd love to know, did anything ever happen with that? You know, how far did it did it go? You know, is that what uh, Han Solo at Star's End is? Uh, what's what's the deal with that? And, uh, and I do want to read the Secret History book one of these days, but as I said, it's... Uh, now it's gone with a wind because when my hard drive went up, that went with it. So now I've got to get another copy of that at some point. All right, we got a two, a couple other just real quick ones here. We have another one also entitled Star Wars Monthly Monday number 60. This one's from Mike Parker. He says, hey, guys, another great show. Wanted to touch on some things that were brought up regarding the future of Star Wars. Number one, the comics. I understand where Scott is coming from in relation to the return to Marvel. Not to go off topic, but I've been buying Spider-Man since 1982. It might be different now than it was then, but there's a familiarity in buying a book with the same character from the same publisher for all this time. I do give it a, uh, give it a better at being enjoyable than the average book uh, because I'm betting, even on a corporate level, Disney slash Marvel realizes that the Star Wars fan base is a different animal. Number two, the movies. Uh, I like to give everything a shot before I start dumping on it, so anyone complaining now is doing so prematurely. In some respects, I understand. I remember being uh, super pumped to see Episode One in 1999 and being less than enthralled afterwards. But it's a different time now. Disney owns the property uh, and is looking to get everything they can out of it. They know what's on the line, and I think that they will make every effort to put out the best Star Wars movie possible. I very much uh, think the way... Uh, to go is giving the big three a nice send-off while introducing new characters. Keep up the great work. And that's from Mike Parker. And uh, I agree with you. And everything I've heard says that that's pretty much the route that they're going to go. They're going to bring back, you know, at least Han, Luke, and Leia. 
And then I'm hoping they're not killing them off, but I've heard it's basically maybe Han like, will get his chance. Finally, Harrison Ford will finally get his chance. Maybe, maybe. But I, I've heard it's basically going to be a, like a you know a last roundup, last hurrah. You know the old the old guard passes the baton to the new guys, which that's fine. You know, I mean, look how much mileage that you know the the next gen group uh, crew got out of that sort of thing. Hopefully, handled a lot better than Star Trek Generations. But basically, that sort of thing. You know, where you bring back the old guys, you have a last hurrah, you hand it off to the new guys, and then the the next series is basically going to be you know the the next generation. I can live with that. You know, depending on the characters that come out of it. Yeah. You know, if if the entire new generation is comprised of Jar Jar Binkses, then that's going to be a different story. So, <clears throat> and then lastly, I really like this one: Star Wars Monthly Monday. Yes, Thrawn is terrible. Is the subject line on this, which makes my day. It says, "Hey, Scott and Chris. I don't know if you remember me. This is from Matt Huntsworth. I don't know if you remember me." But here's hoping you do. We met briefly at Celebration 6 as our paths crossed between our panels. I had recognized a voice coming from behind me as I unloaded the car in front of the convention center. I turned and was excited uh, uh, to... This makes no sense. I oh, well, I can tell you exactly what happened. This is a guy that made <laughs> us so awesome. That I was... It's a long story, but I was kind of pissed off at that point. As a matter of beyond, <laughs> I was outside having to smoke a cigarette and pacing and ranting, which maybe, <laughs> and Scott trying to calm me down, which maybe right. was why we were loud enough that he could hear us. But we actually had somebody come up to us and go, are you guys two true freaks? <laughs> that was awesome. That was awesome. That's what he's saying here. I think there's a word missing. Uh, he says, I was excited to, and I think it's supposed to be excited to see the Two True Freaks t-shirts and finally put faces to names. I have been an avid listener of the Two True Freaks line uh, then and continue to listen to this day. However, since having had the pleasure uh, to meet and talk uh, to you briefly that day, I've been horrible at trying to keep in touch. Dude. <laughs> Same here. I feel bad about Same, it because yeah. we we were talking right at, from the very very beginning of doing some sort of crossover with those guys. So they have a That's great show. Cool. Yes, do and that still needs to happen, Matt. Yes, and, absolutely. We remember you, and absolutely, we still oh, want to make that. Well, happen. I'll tell you this: we had fun at, uh, on our panel there, but let mm -hmm. me tell you, this guy and his show—they knew how to rock a panel. They oh, yeah. they they worked that room. It was great. Yep. Yeah. They really did. Says, uh, he continues here, but in your latest episode of Star Wars Monthly Monday, Scott said something that echoes a sentiment I've had for a very long time, and I was relieved to finally hear I'm not the only one of this opinion. And this is, yes, Admiral Thrawn is indeed a terrible character. Yes. <laughs> I love it. I won't go into detail. Uh, Go into details as Scott had uh, already hit most of the points that I would list in support of this. And much like Scott mentioned in that episode, the chatter on the internet is about how great it would be to include Thrawn in the new Star Wars films uh, has caused many a palm face moment in front of my computer. Yeah, I completely agree with you. You know, somebody brought up, and I think it was Scott Rifen. I can't remember if this was actually on an episode of Dinner for Geeks or if this was just a conversation I'd seen or maybe even had with him. I can't remember, but at some point it got brought up. Basically, what what would be the deal breaker for you? What could you ever see yourself 
basically leaving the Star Wars universe and what could that be? You know, what could that that deal breaker, that 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 final straw on the camel's back, what could it be? And you know, at the time I kind of laughed it off like, you know, I've put up with a lot of crap over the years for, you know, from Star Wars. Right, right. I could never really see anything that would drive me away. But I'll tell you what, not so much drive me away, but maybe re- make me seriously think about, hmm, are these movies I really want to go see if say you know, if I found out tomorrow, for example, like a trailer comes out for episode seven and we find out that, yep, Thrawn's going to be in it, that could be a deal breaker for me as far as being interested anymore with the new movies. Because I'm sorry, I know the guy's got his legion of fans, but I think that character sucks. Well, I, I, I didn't read the three books, so I can't really judge, but I, I remember not liking it. But it, it, as long as there's not a adapting those books say they introduce a character of Thrawn in the context of a news story or whatever um you know if that character it might end up working in the movie or you might get an actor you know the actor that plays him might be really good and bring him to life and you could end up with something better than the book so it wouldn't be a deal breaker to me but it would definitely like I'd have an eyebrow raised and be like, okay. But I would almost understand because it seems like a lot of people really would like to see that would be, it seems like that would be something that would actually cause more celebration among fan fans, like star Wars, hardcore fans than gnashing of teeth. Unfortunately. So we're in the minority again, once again, well, it depends. I mean, it the rest of the world isn't who, even going to care or know who he right. is. It depends on who would play him. And if they were able to take that character and do something better, more exciting, and less just flat friggin' stupid and cheesy with him is what was done in those books, then I, yeah, maybe. Because I know that Hugo Weaving's name was tossed around. And I like that. He could guy. do it. He could do yeah. a good job with something like that, or Benedict Cumberbatch. But what I don't want to see is that character portrayed exactly the same way on screen in a movie as he was in the books, where you know the the rebels couldn't fart without him predicting it because of he was an art student or whatever. That's just it was so stupid. It was just insultingly stupid to me. So. That's what I don't want to see. But anyway, uh, Matt continues here. He says, the few times I've had any discussion about the Thrawn character in recent months has been met with vehement opposition because of the rabid fandom of this character, which I completely do not understand. Yeah, you and me both, dude. Or general indifference from those that haven't read any of the Thrawn series. Thank you, Scott, for taking the, uh, that moment to step outside of the main subject you were discussing during that episode and voicing your opinion on Thrawn. It finally made me feel like I wasn't alone in not liking this character. No, you are not alone, dude. Uh, keep up the great work, Scott and Chris, and I hope to talk to you both again sometime soon. And again, that's from Matt Huntsworth, Star Wars In Character Podcast, which is a really, really good show. Matt, you started off here by saying, for one, uh, he says, I don't know if you remember. Absolutely we do. And then a little bit later, you uh, you apologize for not keeping in touch. No, dude, it, it's really, it's us that should apologize because we really did have every intention 
of doing that team up that we talked about. And like Chris said, I still want to do it. It's just, you know, he knows how it is. It must be the same way for him. I'm guessing time's just not been our friend lately when it comes to podcast. We're just, we've got our, you know, we've got so many, you know, irons in the fire that it just, you know, time gets away from you. But yeah, I feel horrible. It's been what it's been like a year and a half and we haven't done anything. So if you're listening to this, Stay in touch. Let's work something out. Let's get together. And uh, at the very least, uh, let me know if you're going to uh, Megacom this year. At the very least, let's try to hook up at Megacon if you're going. So let me know. And that was our last email for this time around. Thank you, everybody that wrote in and everybody that didn't. Shame, shame, shame. That's all I got. Were you reading those off pieces of paper? I was, yes. I always print these out. Oh, yep. Excellent. Yes. Yeah, I have nothing to add. I'm um next month we're gonna actually I think it's an Alan Moore story, isn't it? Yeah. We're gonna do uh at least I presume we will do the entire issue of Devil Worlds number one, because they're all short stories. So okay. we're do them all. So we can do issue one of Devil Worlds, which brings us uh, I think that brings us within two stories or two you know, issues rather of being done with the omnibus. And then we can make a big announcement on what the future of star Wars monthly Monday holds as far as star Wars comics or star Wars stories. And then next month, uh, I guess we're going to soldier on in uh, Indiana Jones. <laughs> rah, rah, rah. Yay. <laughs> so come back and join us for that. <laughs> sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite two true freaks affiliated shows simply click the paypal link on our website donate any amount at all tell us which show you're choosing and what message if any you'd like us to read on your behalf and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode with your message read in the show's opener it's that easy and there is no minimum donation Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the 2TrueFreaks at the same time. Welcome to Amazon. I love you. Visit our brand new website at 2TrueFreaks.com. 2TrueFreaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. Join our forum at ForumForGeeks.com, where you can discuss all of the shows on our feed with us and your fellow listeners. You can find 2TrueFreaks on Facebook. Just search for 
two true freaks. And hey, you can friend me, Scott Gardner, on Facebook too. My name is spelled S-C-O-T-T-G-A-R-D-N-E-R. You can friend me on Facebook too, if you can find me. Now available, Two True Freaks t-shirts. See our website for details. Two True Freaks is a very proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. You can check that out at www.comicspodcast.com, where you can hear our new episodes when we put them up. We are also members of the League of Comic Book Podcasts. For more information, visit comicbooknoise.com slash league. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? Thanks for listening, and join us every Monday for new episodes of Two True Freaks. We were finally invited aboard one of these spacecraft, which landed near Ann Arbor, Michigan on October the 24th of 1954. This is a drawing of the craft. As I was leaving the craft, the commander, Soltek, said, soon others of your people will be able to have an experience similar to this.